Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here today, late winter's day, I'm looking at beautiful snowdrops below a moss-covered dry stone wall. I'm in a part of Cumbria that Country Stride has not visited yet. We're just outside Sedba in a beautiful little hamlet here and I'm in the company of, as ever, author, illustrator and our guide for today's walk, Mark Richards. Hello, Mark. Oh, hello, David. This is absolutely divine. Mm -hmm. It's a peaceful little haven. It's a hamlet in the truest meaning of the term, a quiet place where people convene. Now, long-term listeners to Country Stride may remember all the way back to Bill Lloyd, who mentioned this location... Oh, goodness me, three years ago when we were talking about his wonderful heavy horses. Uh, And he mentioned Brig Flats, specifically uh, an incredible poem by Basil Bunting, I think. Brig Flats is where we are, Mark. And as you say, it's an absolutely stunningly beautiful little hamlet. What are we, about 200 yards from the Rawthay here? Yeah, you can hear it. It's a dull background sound. Rooks, no cars whatsoever. And we are in the garden of a particular building which gives us the clue to today's podcast. What are we talking about today, Mark, and who is our guest? Well, we're exploring the whole notion of Quakerism and the Quaker movement, particularly in Cumbria. And uh, our guest today uh, is uh, Professor Emeritus at Lancaster University, Angus Winchester, who is uh, a great friend of Country Stride. Yes, last heard at Country Stride live for all of those who attended that, but... Cumbria is known as the birthplace of Quakerism uh, and particularly 1652 country played a really key role in the early years of establishing Quakerism. George Fox, the founder, makes this incredible journey up England at that time and preaches very close to here, and we're going to go and visit it soon, at a a place called Fox's Pulpit overlooking the town of Sedbury. So we're in the right location to tell this remarkable story. Uh, We've got a great guest, so I think we um, wind down our little chat, Mark, and go and meet Angus Winchester. Listen to that rook. It knows it's in a quiet, heavenly spot. And I'm standing beneath a bower of a a very aged yew tree in this quiet garden with, as Dave said earlier on, snowdrops. All the other flowers haven't got the message that spring's on its way, but they know. I'm in the company of Angus, of course, and I'd like uh, you to introduce yourself, Angus, to our regular listeners. Well, thank you, Mark. Yes, um, I've been at Lancaster University for a long time, now retired, and I am a Quaker and have been from uh, when I was a, a child. And I know 
the Brig Flats area quite well because one of the things that Quakers have done over the last sort of century or so is to develop a whole series of pilgrimages, as they call them, to the 1652 country. And of course, Brig Flats, where we are now, and Furbankfell, where we'll be going in a minute, are central to that story of 1652. So I know the site quite well. It's very much a place that people come to uh, in the hope of recapturing something of that sort of excitement and the insights that Fox brought in 1652 all those years ago. It's sort of a timelessness that this place evokes. Mm. It brings you back into the 17th century. It does. It's a remarkable building, as we'll see in a minute. It dates from the 17th century, and when you go in, you'll feel you are stepping back in time into the 17th, early 18th century in terms of the furnishings. But I think the key point is that every Sunday... Quaker worship continues here as it has done since the building was built in 1675. Now for an introduction to those for whom the notion of Quakerism is uh, something they haven't grasped, could you give us an outline as to what it represents? It's a very interesting question, that, because I think it represents different things to different people, and that's partly because of a very long history, and partly because the central key insight of Quakerism that George Fox was preaching back in 1652, well, to use his own words, it was that Christ has come to teach his people himself. In other words, that there is something within us that we can reach into that will uh, act as a spiritual guide. We don't need all the formal religion, we don't need set forms of worship, uh, but if we gather and if we try to focus on that, as he would call it, almost a seed inside us, we can find the answer to life's questions and how to live a, a good life. So it's very much a personal religion in that sense. And as you could expect with that, we don't have a set liturgy. Traditionally, the Bible was very important. And traditionally, certainly Quakerism sprang out of Christianity and would see itself as a Christian denomination. Um, I think now, if one's honest, a lot of Quakers in this country may have difficulty in calling themselves Christian. Uh, They would see themselves more as tapping into what they would see as a universal spirituality. This is a special year, I gather. Yeah, this is the 400th anniversary of the birth of George Fox. He was born at Fenny Drayton in Leicestershire. And so to express that in this context, where are you taking us today? Well, we're going to start here in Brig Flats at the old meeting house, and then we're going to go up to Furbank Fell, which is a hill just outside Sedbur on the Westmoreland side of the River Loon, overlooking the Howgills. And up on top of there is the site where Fox preached in June 1652 uh, that played a pivotal role in the early history of Quakerism. So we'll pass through the portal of the porch, past that wonderful studied door, and you can reveal the interior to us, Angus. There we go, Angus. Wow, the lights are on. The sunlight is beaming through the leaded lights into this interior space. It's a barn in many respects. It's got panelling and seating. There's even cushions, and I'm sure that's a modern thing. It's with a gallery above head height, broad steps. It's an intriguing space. I gather this was built for this specific purpose as a friend's meeting house. Can you explain it and why it came about? Yes, this is uh, one of the oldest and one of the most beautiful meeting houses in England. It's not actually the very oldest as a building, but uh, it was built in 1675 at a time when Quakers were suffering persecution and, in fact, would have been fined for meeting 
the friends here had originally bought a small bit of land as a burial ground just on the other side of the road from here because one of the things when you had a Quaker community developing one of the first things they needed was a place to bury people because they wouldn't go to the parish priest to be buried in the in the graveyard so they bought this little bit of land as a burial ground and then a few years later they bought the plot of land on which the meeting house is built and it was built in 1675, looking really quite a lot like a cottage. Mm-hmm. As you say, it's barn-like inside, mm-hmm. um, just a few mullioned windows on the sunny side, on the south side, no other windows around. Very simple. The gallery and everything that we can see, the beautiful woodwork of the gallery, was added a bit later, in about 1714. But essentially, the building we see is a building that goes right back to those early days of Quakerism. In terms of what you needed in a meeting house, in relation to the form of worship, you needed somewhere where people could gather, and that was really it. Mm. So you needed seats, you needed a dry space. Traditionally, Quaker meeting houses have their windows set high. Your eyes were lifted. Well, your eyes weren't distracted ah. by what was going on outside. That was the idea. Ah, yes. uh, and light, obviously, it would come in. If we take away the gallery, all that's left are the benches downstairs... Underneath the windows, on the, like the sunny side of the meeting house, is this raised bench oh, yes. with a guardrail in front of it almost and steps down. Mm-hmm. And traditionally, Quaker meeting houses had a raised bench at one end or on one side, as here, which is fairly unusual. Mm-hmm. And this was known as the minister's gallery or the elder's gallery. Ah. Because by the time you get into the early 18th century, Quakers don't have a separate clergy. Anybody can speak in their meetings. But by the early 18th century, it was recognised that some people would speak more than others and they became known as recognised ministers. And the tradition was that if you were a recognised minister, you would sit on the minister's gallery. It was felt that you were more likely to feel the call to speak than somebody else. And below on the seats in front would sit the elders of the meeting, who were the people who were sort of in charge of worship. So you can imagine these, what Quakers would refer to as weighty friends, uh, sitting on these benches on this side of the meeting house, and the rest of the congregation. Uh, Children would be here, presumably. Yes, and Mm. even at Brickflats, there's something that's often commented on. Uh, You've got the steps going up to the gallery. You see there's a gate across the bottom of the steps. Yes. And there's a gate across here as well. Yes, as you Uh, come in. And this was the dog pen. Ah. So you brought your dogs with you to meeting and you locked them in there. Whether they would keep quiet, of course, is another matter. But in terms of the worshipping community, yes, children from probably the age of about four upwards would be expected to come in and to sit in quiet for the duration of the meeting for worship. Well, you've set the scene here beautifully, Angus, and it's a space that you just want to soak up. We're here because of this 400th anniversary. What was the context in which Quakerism arose at that point and developed in this area? Well, if we take ourselves back to the 17th century, of course, we're in one of the most tumultuous periods of English history. We're still in the process of the Reformation. The Reformation isn't something that just happens under Henry VIII, as it sometimes we feel it does. It's something that takes place over about 100 years or more. And by the time George Fox comes here in 1652, when taking groups around here, I often would say, particularly to young folk, who was the king in 1652? (laughs) The answer, of course, is the king had had his head chopped off in 1649, and this was one of the just 11 years when England was a republic. So it's a time of really, you know, dramatic turmoil. People really did feel that the world had been turned upside down, and they wondered what on earth they'd done, some of them. Um, But the political come religious, and you can't separate out the political from the religious in the 1650s, that sort of spectrum. On the one side, you had the people we now think of as the Cavaliers, the, the Royalists, the people who basically in religious terms wanted to retain the Church of England. 
But you also had, on the other side, a really wide spectrum of people who we would now look back and say were Puritans. They were people who were looking for purity in religion, Mm. who basically felt that the Reformation hadn't gone far enough. They're far more cavalier. (laughs) As uh, Sellers and Yateman said in 1066 and all that, the cavaliers were wrong but romantic, and the (laughs) Puritans were right but repulsive. (laughs) And they they certainly were fairly fairly definite about their views, and fairly difficult people, I think, Uh some of them. Now, where Quakerism fits into all this is that, as I say, people on the Puritan side are trying to find a purity of religion, trying to, in fact, get back to what they would see as primitive Christianity, Christianity without all the extra sort of bits that have been added on over the centuries. Yeah. So this is partly why this is such a simple building, because Quakers were trying to find the simplest and purest form of religion. I've settled myself down. Well, the pair of us have set ourselves down on these lovely little benches. Uh, Can you talk to us a little bit, Angus, about this man, George Fox? What was his early life all about? Yes, Fox is a very interesting character, and people continue to try to understand him. Um, He was born in Fenny Drayton in Leicestershire in 1624, the son of a Puritan family. His father was known as Righteous Christa, who was a Puritan. And Fox, as a young man growing up in the 1630s, 1640s, growing up during the Civil War, he was very troubled. I think now we would say he was a very troubled young man. Um, he was looking for truth in religion, and he, as he says, he went around from one religious teacher to another and didn't find what he was looking for. And then gradually he sort of developed this idea of, again, to use his words, Christ coming to teach his people himself. In other words, we can forget about all the structures of formal religion. And he began to preach that. And he travelled around, putting it into context, 1640s, early 1650s. Fox isn't the only preacher travelling around. There are lots and lots of people who are looking for religious truth. Mm -hmm. Um, And he travels around in contact with these people uh, who include uh, members of the New Model Army. Because remember, Cromwell's New Model Army is a Puritan army of sort of hand-picked people. And a lot of the religious debates of the period, the religious stroke political debates of the period, are taking place in the New Model Army. Now, Fox never becomes a soldier himself, but he is clearly part of that conversation. And he travels from Leicestershire up into Yorkshire, spends a fair bit of time in Yorkshire, and he's gathering, you know, a few people are, are beginning to take an interest in what he's saying, and he's travelling with other people who have, as he would say, been convinced of the truth of what he's saying. And to follow his journal, which was written uh, retrospectively, but he talks about climbing up Pendle Hill, at least he says he climbs up a high hill, and it's usually identified as Pendle Hill, from which he saw some sort of a vision where he saw the people waiting to be gathered. When he then comes to this area, he identifies Brigflats, this actual area here, as the place where the people were waiting to be gathered. He goes through the dales, we don't know the exact route, but up Wensadale, basically, comes down Garsdale, down towards Sedbur. And he arrives here in early June, 1652. His contacts, as I say, are largely people in the New Model Army. He's also a preacher, and preachers like large numbers of people to preach to. (laughs) And uh, Sedbur, in Whitsuntide, the time that he arrived, uh, has the big hiring fair on the Wednesday in Whit Week. So he's here for that. To bring the story around, he arrives here actually in Brigflats and spends the first night with a man called Richard Robinson, who lived in the old farmhouse, which is still here at the bottom of Brigflats Hamlet. There's a sort of telling story here which says something about how Fox was received. Robinson invites him in, says you can stay the night, and then suddenly thinks, maybe he's a robber. 
Maybe he's coming to, to steal. So he locks the doors. Ah. And there are other people at this time who say he was a madman who had got away from his family. You know, there was a certain sense that because he's so sort of fervent in, in religious terms, people are, are a bit worried about him. Uh, so he spends a night here. He then goes to a meeting of, and this is where we must introduce the people who are in this area who are really absolutely crucial to this story, the people who we now refer to as the Westmoreland Seekers. They were separatists, people who'd cut themselves off from the parish church and were meeting separately for religious purposes. A lot of them, they were broadly Puritans, a lot of them, as I say, linked with the New Model Army, but broadly from the, the farming communities in this area. And he went to a meeting of theirs at a place called Borat, which is just down the road from here on the way to Sedba. And then during the following week, uh, he went into Sedba on the Wednesday, on the day of the fair, preached under a tree in Sedba churchyard to a large number of people, disputing with, with other people and indeed winning people over to his viewpoint. And then the following Sunday, he went up to Furbank Fell, where we'll be going shortly, because that was where a meeting of these seeker people, these separatists from the area, was being held. Well, we'll be going up to Furbank Fell, uh, Master Knot, before long. But first of all, I'd really like to just delve into the way George Fox was gathering these people. There was a pattern of people, speakers, orators, having a, a message. But he had a certain charisma. Yes, I mean, Fox is clearly a charismatic man. That's, that's clear from various accounts. People say if he looked you in the eye, you suddenly felt you were being seen right, right I'll through. i you, you know? <laughs> <laughs> But to put it into the wider context, a phrase that often comes to me is when they were writing about the early history of Quakerism in the Yorkshire Dales area, looking back over about 40 or 50 years, they said it was a time of great zeal. And I think that's the thing. It's a time when the Church of England has been abolished, the monarchy has been abolished. People are really wondering where they're going and looking for the right way forward. It's a genuine seeking time, I think. Fox is, as I say, not alone. He's one of numerous preachers of various different persuasions. And there was a tradition uh, in those days that after the formal sermon in a parish church, somebody else could come and give a message to the congregation. And so Quaker preachers would do this. Uh, and from the church authorities, they were seen as disturbing the, the service, but they were actually preaching to the congregation. Um, so it's a time of great flux, I think. Um, and it's, it's like also, year dot in a sense. Yes. Everything's changed. Yes, they're looking for a way forward. Uh, and it's a time of, of major fractures in society, a bit like today, you know, where you've got culture wars and things. Well, I mean, you could see the political religious divisions in the 1640s and 50s as a bit of a culture war. Uh, and it's by no means the whole of society that is uh, Puritan or indeed seeking, but the substantial number of people are. I'm rather intrigued by the notion that it's really down in the rural routes that this is emerging. Yes, one of the big questions is why does Fox's message suddenly take off in this area, in South Westmoreland, North Lancashire, the fringes of Yorkshire? Certainly by the later 1650s, when the Quakers are beginning to preach all over the country, they are thought of as a Northern English group. They're thought of as a Northern English sect even though Fox himself is a Leicestershire man. That's partly because, as a result of his preaching in 1652, Fox then has with him a large group of really quite powerful preachers uh, from these northern counties, people who had already been preachers in the Seeker community, because the Seekers, the people who separated themselves from the parish church, did have a structure of their own. They had their own preachers, they had their own services. So there were some really quite powerful preachers among them. But to come back to the question of why up here and why in these rural communities, 
there must be something in the idea that Quakerism appealed to people with independent spirit and the independent farmers of these more upland areas of northern England. Resourceful people who made it off the land. And who also probably resented authorities in a way, felt that they wanted something that was grassroots in terms of their religion. And when you look at the structure of the Church of England or the established church across the north of England, it's an area of very large parishes with outlying chapels. You could say there are fewer clergy around, so there's more scope for for freedom. And it's also striking that in parts uh, of the north where Quakerism was particularly strong, there were places where there were comparatively few gentry around. So these twin pillars of authority, the, the gentry and the church, are often absent in the places that Quakerism really takes off. Now, this is particularly true in places further north in Cumbria, in areas around the Silith area, for example, and areas around Cockermouth, where Fox goes in 1653, the following year. And again, there are separatist groups and his message is very well received. But it's in particular in those places, to say, at a distance from a parish church and where there are no resident gentry. Now, you said that George Fox was quite an orator and he has great qualities. Mm. Yes, he was clearly a very powerful preacher. That is, that is absolutely clear. Uh, from the, what we know of the rest of his life, it's filtered through the religious writing because most of what we know is from the religious writing. He was a simple man in terms of how he dressed. He was famous for his leather breeches. He um, was quite often, I think, would starve himself in terms of fasting, just drink a little water, and that sort of heightened, I think, his spiritual awareness. He was tough. He suffered terrible imprisonments and beatings, but he survived them all. He was a powerful character in terms of organisation as well, because after these heady days in the 1650s, when things settled down, but under the time of persecution under Charles II in the 1660s and 1670s, Quakers need to organise themselves. And Fox is a good organiser, along with Margaret Fell from Swarthmore Hall, who later became his wife. They really are the two key figures who organise the Society of Friends in such a way that it allows them to survive. So he's an organiser, he's a powerful man, a slight, an oddball, I think one has to say. I think mm-hmm. people certainly found him strange and odd and difficult. Um, but somebody who had this clear religious conviction, and a religious conviction which spoke to the condition of a lot of people in 17th century England. Now, you talk about the inner light that he nurtured in people's minds about themselves. What were the wider teachings? Everything emanated, really, from this idea that, to use his words again, Christ has come to teach his people himself. How do you then lead a Christian life? And certain things came out and remain the core principles of Quakerism to this day. Ideas of truth and integrity, of equality, of simplicity, and of peace. Those are usually the four testimonies, as they're called, uh, ways of living life. Equality meant that you saw everybody as equal in the eyes of God, and therefore you tried not to perpetuate those social distinctions that form so much a part of society. So one of the things that Quakers did right from the very beginning was that they insisted that in the language of the time, if you're speaking to one person, you say thou and thee, if you're speaking to a group, you say you. You is the plural. Mm. Thou and thee are the singular. Now, of course, we've switched now. We say you to everybody. Mm. But in the 17th century, to say thou to somebody who was your social superior was really challenging. Now, Fox and Margaret Fell and people, they would address the king as thou. They would mm-hmm. address Cromwell as thou. And this was really threatening 
to people in society. But it came directly from this idea of everybody being equal before God. That also spread into worship. If everybody's equal before God, then any message from God can come through anybody. So any man, woman, and of course a woman preaching was unheard of almost in the Mm. 17th century, but any man, woman or child might actually preach and utter in the services. So there's that equality side. Simplicity springs out of the Puritan idea, the idea that you try to lead your life in a way where you're focusing all the time on the light within. So this means you try to unclutter life. So Quakers were seen as, until the, really until the 20th century, as sort of quite narrow Puritans in some ways. They wouldn't have anything to do with um, music, for example. A lot of culture was closed to them. They wanted to concentrate on things of the spirit. Peace, the peace testimony. Quakers are very well known for the peace testimony, the refusal to fight. This is something that emerged in Quakerism from the late 1650s, early 1660s. And clearly the idea that if everybody is equal, if everybody has that of God within them, then it is wrong to kill them. So fighting was not allowed. Now, Fox himself, he never joins the army. He sees his role as, if you like, a spiritual war rather than a military war. Some of the early Quakers in the 1650s did see the army as important in perpetuating and allowing their view of religion to prosper at the time, for example, of the Restoration. So this meant that Quakers were seen as dangerous people at the time of Charles II's restoration in 1660. And it's round about that time that they say, well, hang on, are we really going to undertake revolution and uh, and uprising? How does that square with our ideas of the light within? And they decide from that date that as a group, they will take a stand against militarism, against, against fighting. Peace testimonies is called, which develops then. And which, of course becomes in some senses more important as we move through time particularly into the 20th century when of course Quakers like everybody else was challenged by two world wars and a lot of Quakers were conscientious objectors and a lot of conscientious objectors who weren't Quakers were attracted to Quakerism during the 20th century as a result. Well you've got us into the timeline we've got the sense of the purpose of George Fox and the movement that blossomed in this setting and its wider rural community, what would make more sense now is to actually get up onto the fell. So we'll head up to Furbank Fell, onto Master Knot, and see that magical place where they gathered. Well, there we are. We're in the countryside. There's a quad bike here. A shepherd, he's bringing some silage, I think, on a bit of a trailer behind his quad bike. We wandered up the fell side from Furbank Hamlet, with behind us that majestic, billowing, clouded slopes of the Howgills, magic view. Anyway, we've come onto the road and uh, wandered past an enclosure with some large trees in it, stunted yew tree in the corner, and one gravestone. And... We'll learn a little bit about that in a moment, but we've come to a little kissing gate and come to a crag, a flat crag with a plaque on it, and I'm at a point where I've got a view down the Loon Valley towards the Bollenfels, but what we're here for, Angus, you told us that uh, George Fox, he was down at uh, Brig Flats, and he was drawn up onto the fell where the seekers came. Could you illuminate us a little bit on that? Yes, well, thank you. As you say, we're standing beside a really rather unimpressive bit of rock outcrop, just a sort of roughish bit of rock outcrop, on which there is a big plaque 
which was put up in 1952, which was the tercentenary of Fox's journey. And I'll just read what it says on the plaque. It says, Let your lives speak, which is a fairly core element in Quakerism. Here or near this rock, George Fox preached to about 1,000 seekers for three hours on Sunday, June the 13th, 1652. Great power inspired his message, and the meeting proved of first importance in gathering the society of friends known as Quakers. Many men and women convinced of the truth on this fell and in other parts of the northern counties went forth through the land and over the seas with the living word of God, enduring great hardships and winning multitudes to Christ. So, why is it here? Why on earth on this bleak bit of hillside? Well, the key really, as you said, Mark, is in this little walled enclosure with just one single tombstone in it. Because this walled enclosure was the site of the old chapel of Furbank. Um, And by chapel, I mean, if you think back to the Northern English uh, parochial system, the parishes were large and outlying parts of parishes had their own chapels. Now, Furbank here is the furthest flung corner of the parish of Kirby Lonsdale, a good few miles down the River Loon. And in the 17th century, the people of Furbank built themselves a chapel up here on the fell. This, of course, was unenclosed moorland in the 17th century. Why they chose to put the chapel here, we don't really know, but it must, I think, be because it was sort of, I was going to say mutually convenient, but possibly it's mutually inconvenient for all the farms in Furbank, which are scattered out along the edge of the fell, down the hill from here, or along the edge of the loon and round. So this was a place that everybody could come to. They all had a, a walk up onto the hilltop onto this bleak and windy place. But this was a little chapel. Now, that chapel was built in the 17th century, and like quite a lot of the chapels built in outlying places in the 17th century, it was taken over, or used at least, by the Puritans, as well as being a chapel of ease for the local parishioners. And the seeker group, the Westmoreland seekers, these separatists who separated themselves from the churches, they met in some of these chapels. They met here, and they met uh, in the chapel at Preston Patrick. Fox went to both of them. And he came up here on the 13th of June, Sunday the 13th of June, to the the Seeker meeting. The Seekers were, as I say, quite an organised group. They had their own preachers. And in the morning, the Seeker preachers preached in the chapel. And in the afternoon, Fox preached to the assembled company. And his message is quite interesting, because he's out here on the hillside. And people said, well, what's he doing preaching out here on the hillside? You know, I mean, the chapel is the place he should be preaching. And he he says, no. He says, the chapel's no more holy than anywhere else. Places are all equally holy, because Quakers don't believe in any concept of consecrated ground. The whole of the earth is is as holy as anywhere else. So Fox was using this episode here to make that point. And he preached out here, says to a thousand people, a large number, let's say, who gathered around him. Obviously, his reputation had gone in front of him after his preaching in Sedbur earlier in the week. And it was a really of paramount importance in the early history of Quakerism because, as the plaque says, a lot of people were convinced of his word and these included the seeker leaders. And these people were educated, articulate preachers themselves and they joined with Fox after this meeting and after the meeting he held down at Preston Patrick in the following week and gradually gathered together a group of really powerful preachers so that no longer was it Fox and a few other followers, it was quite a large community up here in southern Westmoreland who were following him. How old was George Fox at that time? Can you give us a little bit of a picture of that day? 
Yes, I mean, Fox, we tend to think, I suppose I always tend to think anyway, of Fox as an old man because he was a long time ago. But actually, he was only 27. He would have been 28 that summer, later wow. that summer. So he was a 27-year-old, young, fiery man from Leicestershire. Funny accent yes. uh, from Leicestershire. And he's up here. He's up clearly somebody from outside. It wasn't a cold, windy day as it is today in February where we are. It was in June. It was a warm day. We know that the summer of 1652 was a dry summer. Fox talks about going and not eating anything, but going off and having a drink of water while the people went down. He says people went home to their dinners after the preaching in the chapel in the morning. And then they came back and gathered around him here on the hillside. I think we can imagine the buzz there must have been among these people expectant. You know, they'd heard this man preaching in the churchyard in Sedbur earlier in the week and they thought he's got something interesting to say. He's got some uh, answers. He's got hopefully some answers, yes, and we'll, we'll come and hear. I believe you got a little extract there from his journals. Yes, George Fox wrote a journal. He did it retrospectively, so this is written a good 10, I think almost 20 years after the event. But this is his record of what happened. I went to a brook and got me a little water, and so I came and sat me down atop of a rock. For the word of the Lord came to me, I must go and set down upon the rock in the mountain, even as Christ had done before. In the afternoon, the people gathered about me with several separate teachers, where it was judged there were above a thousand people, and all those several separate teachers were convinced of God's everlasting truth that day, amongst whom I declared freely and largely God's everlasting truth and the word of life about three hours. And there were many old people that went into the chapel and looked out of the windows and thought it a strange thing to see a man to preach on the hill or mountain, and not in their church, as they called it. I was made to open to the people, but the steeple house, they called churches and chapels steeple houses, but the steeple house and that ground on which it stood were no more holy than that mountain. Well, we'll backtrack from this amazing spot, back down the hill, and continue the story a little bit more before we get back down to Brig Flats. The typical Cumbrian galvanised gate. <laughs> Come down from the graveyard and the rock, and we're coming down towards the hamlet of Furbank, and I've got this marvellous view. Looking out over the Howe Hills, I can see Fellhead, height of Bush Hall, the Calf, Bramrig Top, Calders, Arendt Hall, and hiding behind a oak tree is Winder, and all students at the school had to climb Winder, otherwise they'd be uh, roasted. <laughs> had to do that. Anyway, it's a marvellous green setting, great spacious setting. So I'd now like to cover what happens after that great gathering at Furbank. Well, the Furbank gathering was really the first of several. Fox stayed with the Westman Seekers for a week or two after that. And the next big gathering was at the chapel at Preston Patrick down near Millthorpe. And again, that was a Seeker gathering and more people were convinced. And Fox, we think, we don't know the full details of the, the itinerary here, but we think he then went via Kendall, where again there were a lot of Quakers were convinced in the Kendall area. And he was heading westwards. Now again, you have to sort of stand back and think at this time, this network of Puritan preachers, of people interested in the Puritan preachers. One house in Furness that was regular recipient of Puritan preachers was Swarthmore Hall near Elverston, which was the house that belonged to Judge Thomas Fell and his wife Margaret and their family. Judge Thomas Fell was a, a judge and uh, quite a leading figure in the Cromwellian regime. He never became a Quaker, 
but his wife did. And Fox turned up there in sometime in the summer of 1652, disputed with the priest in uh, Alveston Church, who, of course, was really the Fell family's confessor, as it were. This caused quite a lot of ructions. And he ended up coming to the hall and preaching in the hall, and Margaret Fell was convinced, and so were some of the other members of the family. And as far as we can tell, he then makes Swarthmore Hall his base for the following winter. So he and, we can imagine, you know, visits from the other seeker leaders who we convinced here and, and, and in Preston Patrick and so on in the Sedbury area earlier, uh, they would be gathering in Swarthmore Hall across that winter of 1652-53, probably planning basically a missionary escapade across the whole of Britain. Eventually, Swarthmore Hall became Fox's home because 11 years after Judge Fell died in the late 1650s, so in the late 1660s, George Fox and Margaret Fell married. So she became Margaret Fox. And the two of them really became the leading lights in organising the Quaker movement in the 1660s, 70s. But go back to 1652. There they are in Swarthmore Hall, planning really what was going to happen the following year. And the next obvious county to go to, from Fox's point of view, is to go round Blackcomb and up into Cumberland. Now, of course, you know what they say, now good comes round Blackcomb. They say that we either side, whether you're in, <laughs> in Lancashire or in Cumberland. But anyway, Fox and his followers went round Blackcomb and came up into Cumberland, where he probably knew, again, through the sort of Puritan network, that there were people who would be interested in his message. His message was well received in the Cockermouth area, around what became Pardshaw, which became the sort of mother church of Quakerism in West Cumberland, and then further north in the Silloth area, where there were separatists, and quite a substantial number of Quaker meetings got going in Cumberland, as indeed in Westmoreland, as a result of these journeys in the 1652-1653. Thereafter, Fox and Margaret and the other preachers turned their attention further south, and that's when they spread out across most of the rest of England. But those two years, 1652-1653, and these missionary journeys in this area and up into Cumberland were absolutely crucial in really creating a sea change in the scale of the Quaker movement. It cemented their destiny. I think so, yes. Well, you've given us that lovely story of the spreading of the mission throughout Cumberland and Westmoreland. And now I think we ought to just backtrack down to the gorgeous little dwelling, Brickflats Meeting House and... Complete the story. Well, marvellously, we've come back through the study door at Brickflats into the Friends' Meeting House. Mercifully, the sunlight is still with us, which has been a blessing. I had that wonderful conversation on the fell, but I'd like to be able to move on from about 1675, when this building was built by the community of seekers here. Well, 1675, when the building was built here, is in the middle of that period of persecution under Charles II, when the Clarendon Code, as it was called, basically forbade worship other than according to the rights of the Church of England. So Quakers were out on a, on a limb and were being fined and being imprisoned for meeting for worship. Some of their other testimonies also brought them up against the law, um, particularly the refusal to pay tithes. Tithes were one-tenth of your agricultural produce that you paid to the church, although actually a lot of them were, by the 17th century, being paid to other organisations as well. But in origin, they were to uphold the priesthood in the church. And Quakers say, well, we don't use the services of the church, we refuse to pay tithes, uh, and of course that brought them up against the law as well. So there's a period of persecution, 
which carries through until 1689, which is the year of the Toleration Act. What form does this persecution take? It's both the sort of persecution by the state, so the um, findings and imprisonments for meeting illegally, as the state would say, and for refusal to pay tithes. But it's also a sort of more low-level persecution, really. Refusing to refer to somebody as you, uh, refusing to doff your hat to somebody, which was a sign of respect. Mm-hmm. Um, this resulted in people being, you know, beaten up and sworn at and generally being treated as as outcasts and basically being discriminated against in a whole range of different ways. So the result of this was that friends tended to sort of look in on themselves, tried to maintain themselves as they saw it as a sort of pure group at a time when the rest of the world around them had gone back to a lot of the pre-1640s forms of religion and, and, and so on. You mentioned the Toleration Act Yes, this was an Act of Parliament in 1689 which allowed Protestant nonconformists, not Catholics, but Protestant nonconformists, to worship legally as long as they registered their places of worship. So a meeting house like this becomes a registered place of worship. You're no longer persecuted for meeting here. What that meant for the Quaker community was that, as I say, they saw themselves as a sort of pure remnant, a precious remnant of this turmoil in the early to mid-17th century, that they were hanging on to what they saw as purity in religion. Um, They'd already refused the services of the parish church. So this meant that you buried separately and importantly you married separately and Quaker marriages which go back to the 1650s um, a very simple marriage ceremony held in a meeting house these were recognized in law so Quakers married themselves separately if you went off to the parish church to get married you would be disowned as they said your actions would be disowned for going to the parish church and of course this caused quite a lot of upset and quite a lot of loss of quakers so they become a sort of inward looking group and and increasingly an interconnected intermarried group who therefore sort of are a little bit separate from the rest of society and that's really what characterizes friends through the 18th century i associate quakers with wealth also so where does this sort of emerge well when you've got a group who are marrying each other i mean not not marrying out that tends to sort of concentrate the wealth also quakers were not able to go to the universities they weren't allowed to go to the universities because they wouldn't take an oath of allegiance they weren't anglicans they couldn't go to a university they couldn't go into the professions so they tended to concentrate on commerce and industry some quaker families by no means all but some quaker families became very wealthy through the later part of the 18th century and then by the 19th century you get the big particularly the chocolate dynasties that are well known yes in this setting, we think of the London Quaker Lead Company. Yes, they were the company that had the mines in the, in the North Pennines, the lead mines in the North Pennines, made a lot of wealth from it. They were originally Quaker, but they didn't have very much to do with the Quaker community in Cumbria, it has to say. They were simply the owners of the mines up in Nolston and, and Bufton and places, but they didn't really interact particularly with the Quaker community in Cumbria. Now, it's probably time we wound down this conversation, but it's actually the tenets of Quakerism is evident in the wider world today. If you compare society today with society in the 17th century, a lot of the things that Quakers were complaining about in the 17th century are now the norm. So um, equality, we at least pay lip service to equality legally in this country and indeed in many parts of the the Western world. So in a way, that's a Quaker idea that has, has won. Clearly, pacifism is still a fringe, but it is wider, much wider than just Quakerism. 
the way of doing trade. Uh, in the 17th century, much trade was carried on by barter. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't a fixed price for anything. You went and you haggled. Right. Quakers said that there should be a fixed price. This was come back to this idea of integrity and truth. If I'm saying that this bag of oats is going to cost you two shillings... Quaker Oats. Quaker Oats is not a Quaker company. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yes, if I'm saying this bag of oats is two shillings, yep. and you say, I'll give you one on sixpence, I will say, no, two shillings is my price. It's a fair price, and I'm not going to say two shillings and then accept something different. And, of course, that's now become more or less... The norm. It is. Uh, so there are various things that Quakers tried to do. I mean, the theeing and thouing is an interesting one. Well, the Quakers jumped on the wrong side of the line there, didn't they? Uh, we now say you to everybody. Yeah. Uh, but the principle that we should not distinguish in the second person between people according to their rank, that's normal. Before we completely wind up, I'd like to be able to look at the presence of Quakerism in Cumbria, in buildings, perhaps in businesses. Quakerism is still alive and kicking in Cumbria, very much so. Um, I think, if I remember rightly, there are about 11 meetings in the county that are still held on a regular basis, mostly in the towns now, mostly not so much in the rural areas. But the old meeting houses are often still there. I mean, one that many people will know is the lovely old meeting house at Mosdale near Mungreisdale. I enjoy a coffee or a tea and a lovely homemade cake. Yes, it's got a nice cafe attached to it, hasn't it? Um, so the, the old meeting houses like, like Mosdale and like um, the old very important meeting house historically now no longer uses a meeting house but now uses a hostel at Pardshaw near Cockermouth. So there are these old meeting houses around in the county. And there were also various businesses, as in other parts of the country, that were originally Quaker-owned. And perhaps the best-known one in Cumbria, I guess, is probably Cars of Carlisle. Yes. A lot of the, the businesses in the 19th century uh, in Kendall were Quaker-owned, for example. So there was quite a Quaker presence. Now, Angus, you've been a Quaker for many a long year. What does it mean to you? That's a very good question, because I've gone in and out of my Quakerism, as it were, (laughs) regularly attending meetings sometimes and not regularly attending meetings at other times. But I do believe that the essential tenets of Quakerism, as preached by George Fox, really do come to, as I would see it, probably the purest form of Christian worship and Christian life that one could find, however hard it is to try to follow them. So I I find the Quaker ideas a, a useful guide to life and something to try to hold on to. journey's end uh we've had a great day mark we've learned a huge amount about quakerism absolutely about george fox and his remarkable journey and angus quite the guide the time that george fox was operating was quite similar to today really it was a very Mm. confused time and people were searching and george fox a young man from leicestershire who had a fire in his heart and a sense of the importance of humanity and equality and i think it's an amazing story yeah, great story. Yeah, in, very interesting to hear those kind of historical parallels, I suppose. I thought that was absolutely fascinating. And I'm really glad we did that one. It's a subject I've been wanting to cover for ages. Now, our usual housekeeping. The first thing to say is these podcasts do cost money to make. We have to buy the microphones. We have to 
pay the petrol, we have to pay the hosting fees and all those kind of things. Um, so if you enjoy what we do here, if it brings something to your life and you want to say thanks, the best way you can do that is to um, send us £2 a month. That's all we ask for. And you can do that via Patreon. Uh, and you can find the details for how to do that at www.countrystride.co.uk. If you want to support us in other ways, well, you can buy our guidebooks. Um, and they are also on that same link, www.countrystride.co.uk. Uh, next up, Mark, what are, we, what are we doing next? Well, we're heading down to Windermere just to see what that great lake can tell us about the boating history that is um, quite a draw to tourism, but it's part of a, a long history of industrial background to the Southern Lake District. The historic boats of Windermere coming soon. That should be absolutely fantastic. We're on social media, Mark. All Facebook and Twitter, or X, uh, at CountrySTRIDE1. All kinds of information you will find up there, including Mark's lovely linescape, so you can look at them, and uh, regular photos from all across the lakes. That's us signing off for today on what's become really rather a lovely day. And we'll see you in three weeks again for CountrySTRIDE.